This is the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Precisely. That information couldn't be any more accurate. It's 103, it's Saturday, it's beautiful, it's sunny, it's hot, and it's a perfect time to talk about disability law. Segway of the year right there. John Scholes, present. James Fireman, partner, also present. Same with Tamara Gopian, both courtesy Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country, reaching out to uh, talk about your plight or for just some questions as we uh, we deal with the topic over the next hour is really, really simple. 416 872 1010 phone number text 71010 we answer those as well you got all kinds of time you want to reach out beyond that to either james or tamar readily available at help at disabilityrights.ca and this number 1-855-821-5900 i'll give those out throughout the show but uh, your calls and questions are always uh, ready and uh, we're ready rather to answer them so so bring them on we got a, a lot of stuff and emails to get through questions today guys as we do every week but we always start off with a, a case of the day or a week that was Who's going to uh, who's going to fire off first? Well, I'll mm-hmm. take the first shot. All right, James, go ahead. The floor is yours. <laughs> so, schools. First of all, am I correct? Was that a Muzak version of Bad Romance that led us? Absolutely. I, I don't. I think it was. I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I just, I just wanted to be sure. Okay. On to more serious things. Um, let's talk about healthcare and access to healthcare, which right. Anyone living in this country knows is an issue. No matter who you are, there are problems down the line. And that's not a criticism per se, although one might go there. I'm not, though. I'm talking from a much more factual perspective, particularly for those who are involved at any point in the disability or long-term disability process, whether you're applying for, whether you're getting disability benefits or you've been denied. Access to health care is a big issue, and for a very simple reason. If you have long-term disability benefits and you become disabled and you apply for those benefits, your policy is going to require that you get reasonable treatment. Now, this can be worded in several different ways, but in substance, the requirement is almost always the same which is that you have to get you have to make reasonable efforts to get treatment as recommended by your medical professionals or as reasonably recommended and that can be a problem if you do not have access to that health care and that can be because of a number of different factors um, there are certainly issues with access to health care generally for anyone in our system just being able to get an appointment with a specialist, and even more so with someone who's providing primary care, especially if you're living in a rural area. That's a huge problem throughout the country in rural areas. Even even in urban centers, it's becoming something of a problem. Getting a family physician, uh, a lot of people have to rely on nurse practitioners, and in many cases, even nurse practitioners are hard to come by. So this is something where if you're not able to get in to see someone who is able to just, you know, at least assess you at the outset and start you down the path to figuring out what's wrong, then you've got a problem, not just from obviously from the medical perspective, but then you have a problem from a legal perspective if it's your intention to apply for long-term disability benefits because you're going to be faced with an insurance company that is going to say, sorry, we don't have any medical records to support that you have this disability, that you have something that is disabling you from being able to work as is required by the policy. So what do you do if you're in that situation? And it's tough. I mean, certainly 
it is going to depend to a great extent on your particular circumstances and what kind of medical care you require. In other words, if you are someone who is living in an urban center that has a family physician and you have access to not only primary care, obviously, but then specialists as required, then the requirement is going to be that you follow through on that, that you get uh, you know, medical, regular treatment from your family physician, that you uh, seek any specialist appointments that are relevant, that you, ha- that you ask for referrals from your doctor if they're not being provided, and that you follow through on treatment recommendations. That's what's going to be required, but that's the best case scenario. What happens if you're not so lucky? What happens if you're living in an urban area? Well, there are people that their primary care is going to the emergency department at whatever hospital is closest to them. And I have a gentleman who I have a mediation coming up with next week, and he has been in very much that situation. He's moved during the course of his claim from the time he became disabled until now. But in both cases, he was living in very rural areas where there was very there was very limited primary medical care. And so he has faced this problem in two different cities and two different provinces. Uh, and that's exactly what he's done. He's gone to emergency care. Uh, when he moved, he was about an hour and a half away from a city center and was able to go into a walk-in clinic by driving an hour and a half and was able to at least get some primary care. I mean, it's not great, but... You do what you can do. And that's not a knock on the walking clinic. It's just if it's a walking clinic, it's someone who's likely seeing you for the first time. And so that's not ideal either. Uh, but, you know, he's done what he can. He's gone to this walking clinic. He's gone to emergency departments. He has gotten referrals. Now, the, the referral he got is for a psychiatrist. And guess what? That's going to be a year. So it's he's not going to get to that psychiatrist for four or five months until after we have the mediation. But there's nothing he can do about it. He has done literally everything possible in order to seek medical care. He's been prescribed medica- medication by one of the doctors in emergency that he's uh, gotten renewed through the through the walk-in clinic. And in doing that, you know, he has followed through on all the treatment recommendations he's been given. He had very limited extended health care, which he used for counseling. He's done everything possible. He's no financial means in order to pay for treatment on his own. So. He is doing everything possible in order to get treatment, even though it is very limited. And his insurer denied benefits, which isn't a surprise. Doesn't mean it's justified, but it's not surprising to me that the insurer is using the poor access to treatment as a basis to deny benefits. Now, that's not what they're saying. They're just saying that you haven't gotten appropriate medical care, but that's not his fault. And in that situation, when he has done everything that he can possibly do, in order to get the treatment that he requires. And that's not sufficient for the insurance company. Well, that's too bad for the insurance company. They've denied the claim, but they're gonna pay for that. They're gonna wind up paying benefits on this. And if anyone is out there who is listening and is in a very similar situation where you have been denied benefits because you just do not have the access to the treatment, you're not able to get in to see someone that is funded by the government and you don't have the funds in order to afford to pay for it on your own through private treatment, and you've been denied benefits and you've done everything that you can, that you can do, you've gotten referrals to whoever doctors are possible, but there simply isn't an appointment on a timely basis. And if you've been denied, call us. Call us. If your insurer is denying on that basis, it's not justified. You should not be denied long-term disability benefits because the system isn't able 
to provide you with the treatment that you require. Tamar? No, my brain went to the same place, James. It's amazing. We're starting to think alike, which is a little bit scary. Uh, Maybe a good thing, I suppose, depending on how you look at it. Uh, Because I was actually having a call with a gentleman this week. Uh, He did have the foresight to call us because his insurance company delivered one of these denial letters like nine months in advance saying uh, that he will be denied disability benefits come the change of definition, which we talk about fairly regularly on our show. And for those who may be new to this show, this is where the definition under the disability policy changes and arguably becomes a little tougher to meet. So for this gentleman, the insurance company has approved and paid benefits essentially until the own occupation period is, is at an end. So they have accepted that he is not going to be able to go back to the job he was doing at the time that he became sick and unwell. And they've also preemptively said, and we also don't think that you're going to be meeting the further test after the two years of payments or the 24 months of payments, saying that you could do something else, some other job that you could do for which you have the minimum requirements, the minimum education and training and experience. But here's how his scenario is relevant to what James was talking about at the top of our show. They've also done their own independent medical assessment of this gentleman. And the medical assessor, so this is an expert, by the way, that the insurance company will hire, and they will send a claimant to this expert to be assessed. This gentleman has a physical disability. It's quite progressive. It has worsened over time. And he has seen multiple specialists, not only his own doctor, but a number of other specialists who have all validated that he's got these physical conditions that are limiting him on on function, on day-to-day things that he can do, and that it's not going to get better with time. He also lives in a remote area. He also has trouble getting treatment that has been recommended like a chronic pain management program and some of these other more sophisticated treatment programs that insurance companies like to suggest that you need. But the more interesting element is that their own assessor has also said that the individual has reached maximum medical recovery. So. The assessor has said to the insurance company, look, I'm validating all his conditions. I'm also validating that he's limited by these conditions. But, you know, I still think that, you know, he's going to be able to do something. And so on that basis, I'm going to make the leap of judgment that you guys can get him back to some other type of job, maybe a sitting down job. And by the way, even though he's not getting sufficient treatment, according to the insurance company, he's already reached the maximum level that he's going to be at by way of recovery. And so it adds another dynamic, another element to the situation of, look, the insurance company is denying. They've put a whole host of different things in the denial letter. And underlying that is this subtext that the fact that you you know, are not getting this extra treatment that we think you should get, regardless of the fact that our own doctor is saying that that treatment's not going to make any difference to the situation. And so they've preemptively declined, even though you can see all of the other opinions and evidence and information is suggesting that this gentleman's situation is in fact not going to change in six months, two months, three months, five years. So that is sort of the tie-in to the appropriate treatment analysis and what the insurance company might say and because of this phone call obviously our next steps are going to be really seriously considering a legal claim against the insurance company to challenge these underpinnings that i think you know are not reasonable in the circumstances 
Guys, a lot of ground to cover. Got to take a short break. We'll get back into it. In the meantime, grab a phone if you have questions. Call in live, 416-872-1010. Text 71010 as well. Or if you want to reach out to James or Tamar privately for a lengthier conversation or a text as well, or at least a phone call, you can email help at disabilityrights.ca or call 1-855-821-5900. Short break. Coming right back to it. Lots more. The Disability Law Show is on the way. listening to the disability law show on the bell talk radio network 120 welcome back to it time to call if you got a uh, question 416-872-1010-7010 if you want to use the text and reaching out to james or tomorrow when the show is is complete 1-855-821-5900 you have the option of email as well help at disabilityrights.ca and uh, with that guys we'll dive into our uh, emails and questions that are coming through charlotte is first up says hey guys i've been on ltd for 14 months under the care of a family doctor and specialist I was recently told by my insurance company they do not need my doctor to sign off on me being able to return to work. Is this true? So, is it true? No, it's not really true. They are supposed to defer to your uh, doctors and specialists, obviously. That's the Mm -hmm. insurance committee that is. And especially when you're under the care of not only a specialist, but a family doctor. Look, I'm not sure what Charlotte's conditions are, but the fact that she's been on disability for 14 months tells me that the insurance company has reviewed her medical information, has considered it in line with the policy, and has accepted that she is in fact totally disabled, Presumably for her from her own occupation as a result of her health issues. So this idea that the insurance company's adjudication doesn't need to include an evaluation of what her own doctors are saying is completely false. Uh, in fact, I've heard from many people saying, well, but my adjuster told me that they can just make their own decision. They don't have to consider my doctor's opinions. Well, they have to consider it whether they do or not is a whole different kettle of fish, right? So, you know, we know insurance companies are going to try and find opportunities to close out claims. We also know that part of the process in them evaluating to do that could include deferring to their own medical people, their own the own advice that they get. Very typically what we see, John, and we talk about this a lot on the show, is the insurance company actually sending the medical file, just the paperwork, the medical file over to a reviewer, a medical reviewer that the insurance company pays for, typically a doctor, and that doctor will review the paper file and provide the insurance company with an opinion that says, look, you know, I think this person can or cannot work based strictly on the medical file. They won't talk to the claimant. They won't talk to the claimant's specialist or doctor. They won't even really probe much further than what's actually written down. They, they don't typically even look at the information that the insurance company may have on file directly from the claimant. So, for example, if there was a conversation between the claimant and the adjuster, sometimes that information in a call log or other details won't even be put over to this medical reviewer. And then they're given very targeted questions. You know, can this person work? What's their prognosis? What's the diagnosis? And full stop. That's the end of the analysis. And the insurance company will say, well, our medical reviewer said you're fine or you're good to go or you will be in three months. And so we're going to cut off your claim. And that's the end of that. And you can see that's just simply not going to meet sort of the the smell test, I call it. 
you know, if the insurance company were to be before a court, they're not going to be able to justify a closing of the claim if the doctors that are supporting Charlotte very clearly have said, look, she, she cannot work. Her conditions are X, Y, and Z. This is ongoing. She is not prepared. We're still, you know, treating her. Perhaps there's further investigations happening. And courts have said very clearly they are going to prefer the treating medical people over these kind of paper reviews that the insurance companies use to decline their claims. James, what do you think about this one? Well, it's funny. So I think back to when Tamara and I first met, and Tamara was working defense. She was working for one of the larger insurers. We had some files together. And uh, we eventually, you know, after many files together, had some discussions about Tamara perhaps coming over and joining our firm and working for plaintiffs. And I remember Tamara was, uh, she was, you know, not sure if she was going to be able to switch her mindset from a defense mindset to a plaintiff's mindset. And I, I think it took probably like 30 minutes <laughs> for her to completely. So, you know, to answer Charlotte's question, um, you know, I would have answered it slightly differently. I don't think anything that Tamara said is in any way wrong. Um, but can they ignore the doctor? Yes, yeah, they can. They don't need the doctor to sign off. They can say, worst thing you have to go to work is we're going to cut off your benefits. And if you, know, if you don't go back to work, you're not going to have your benefits. They literally can do that because there's no one to stop them from doing it. But if they do that and the doctor has said that you can't go back to work, there is a remedy. And the remedy is you bring a legal claim because if it ever gets in front of a judge, the judge is going to say, no, the policy doesn't allow you. So it's really, you know, I I only um, draw the difference because I think we have to talk about the distinction between what they're actually capable of doing and what they're supposed to be. In terms of what they're supposed to be doing, I mean, tomorrow's exactly right, of course. And were this to be overseen by, you know, someone independent interpreting the policy as it went along, they would not be able to do it. But there is nobody doing that. There's nobody who's watching over the insurer's back to make sure that they're applying the policy in the way that it was intended, in the way that it's written. And because of that, they can do a lot of things that they're not supposed to do, at least at the start. And the reality is that a lot of times, in fact, I would venture to guess most of the time when they do the things that they're not supposed to do, they get away with it because most people don't call us. Most people don't decide that they're going to fight their insurance company and give us a call. But when they do, the results are there. The insurer is not allowed to do whatever they want. They have to abide by the policy. Guys, I want to move on to a uh, another uh, another email here as we continue on. Paige is next. You, you want to do it any time, by the way, help at disabilityrights.ca. Ped says, uh, hey, guys, 51-year-old female. I've been employed by the same company for 18 years. My condition got worse over the years despite treatment. I was approved for LTD in 2018. I was sent for a medical examination by my insurer, and the doctor made all kinds of recommendations. I've done some, but my depression slash anxiety isn't improving, and the continued therapy sessions are difficult to absorb due to a decline in my cognitive abilities. My question is, at what point can treatment be actually causing more stress, anxiety, depression, and most of all, fear of being cut off if I don't comply? My doctor does not feel I'm capable to return to any job, but the insurance company is trying to override his medical opinion. Is there anything I can do? Well, so this is a difficult situation because it sounds as though the treatment 
is being provided by someone through the insurance company, which means that there may not be someone who's providing the specialized therapy that can provide a an independent assessment on whether or not this is being helpful other than the, the family physician. I might be wrong about that. It's not entirely clear from Paige's email who's providing her with her therapy. Uh, but that's part of the problem. That's part of the reason why we say when you when you have to get treatment, get someone recommended by your own physician, not someone who's recommended by your insurance company. Because in this particular situation, if the insurance company is saying that you have to go through and get all of these recommended treatments, but they're not helping and they are making things worse, then whoever's providing those treatments can provide an opinion on that as well too. And if that opinion is saying that it's not if the, the treatment has not been effective, and in fact, it may be having a negative impact on this person, on Paige, for example, uh, then it's not, it's not appropriate for the insurance company to insist that you continue. And frankly, the insurance company shouldn't want that. That's not in their best interest either. Their interest is in getting you back to work. Make no mistake about it. That is what every, everything that they are doing is designed to get you back at work or find a justification to stop paying you benefits. They don't want to be paying out benefits. And so if there is treatment that is, in fact, ineffective, they shouldn't want you to continue to do it. They should want you to do things that are moving you closer, not further away from that objective. And so, you know, it's surprising if you are able to get medical support that the treatment is ineffective, that the treatment is beyond ineffective and, in fact, causing stress and anxiety, that they'd be taking that position. Hopefully the treatment is coming from someone who is not in the pocket of your insurance company and will be able to provide you with an independent assessment, a neutral assessment that will support that you are in fact not benefiting from the, the treatment and in fact might be getting better. Tomorrow, you'll probably have an opinion on this, but I think we've got to uh, slide into a quick break and check some okay. traffic. We'll do that in return with uh, with your reply in that particular email from Paige. Paige, thank you very much. Stand by for that reply. We'll, uh, we'll take a short break and get uh, lots more on the way here on the Disability Law Show. Hang on. Welcome back to the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. You betcha, 133. Good to have you back on the show every Saturday. We do this. James is here. Tamar is here. Courtesy Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP. You want to reach out to them anytime, 1-855-821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. But here and now, the number 416-872-1010 to call the show. You want to text a question, that is also an option for you, 71010. But we'll get to our uh, our phone call first. Uh, always top priority. Jim, thank you so much for hanging on the line here. Uh, you have a question? Go ahead. I do. It's kind of a preventative kind of question I've got cool. for you. Um, I've been um, diagnosed to have back surgery, and I've um, I've known probably for about a year and a bit, um, and I don't know how long I'm going to be off for. It's pretty extensive surgery, and um, I haven't told my employer about this because I and, and I don't know if there should be a timeline when I do tell them or or just not tell them at all. I don't want to jeopardize my position uh, and get laid off or something in the intent of me being off work for possibly eight months to a year. So, do you have any Jim, recommendations? Yeah, so it, it's certainly an interesting uh, position to be in. So, first, I'm going to tackle this from a disability standpoint. 
And then I'm going to let Tamara pick up the employment part of it because she deals with employment law a little bit more than I do. Uh, but from, from a disability standpoint, uh, for the most part, when you were talking about long-term disability, you're usually waiting six months before benefits become payable. It's either referred to as the waiting period or the qualifying period, depending on the policy. It means the same thing. When you become disabled from work, which in your case, I presume would be on the day of the surgery and throughout the recovery, um, there is a period of time before which you're not entitled to get the benefits. That's why they call it long-term. In the short term, that benefit isn't available. And so once you pass through those you know, three, four, six months, whatever that qualifying period is, then you would make the application for long-term disability benefits and they would look at your medical records and anything that your doctor wants to send in support at the time and determine whether or not they believe that you meet the test under the policy. And if so, you get benefits. If not, you don't. And so the process is pretty straightforward. You don't really need to do much in advance from a long-term disability perspective. Okay. Now, if you have access to short-term disability benefits, then it would be certainly worthwhile to contact HR and ask for whatever forms are required in order to make the application for your short-term disability benefits because those may well be payable either right away or sometimes there's you know a one week wait before you get them but it's, you know it, it is typically available uh, almost immediately if not immediately when you become disabled from working and so it's much better to get all of that set up in advance to the extent you're able to and if you know when that date is going to be as you would with surgery of course then it would make sense to do it in advance and to submit the forms who you submit them to is going to depend in short-term disability cases it'll depend on the situation that your employer has set up in some cases the the short-term benefits are funded entirely by the employer in some cases it's funded by a private insurer some cases it's funded by the employer but administered by a third party often insurance company or someone with experience so the process will change, but your HR department is certainly going to be able to direct you on where you're going to submit those forms. Your doctor's going to have to fill out a form as well, too. It's very similar to the LTD application process. It's just a different benefit. Um, whether you need to do anything beyond that with your employer is a bit of a different question, which I'll leave to tomorrow. Thanks, Can I just ask one more question on that part as well? So sure. The, so why don't we deal with that first? Go ahead. Oh yeah. But does the LTD does the LTD um, compensate you for the STD period if you don't qualify for that length of time, or is it just no? Let's say that's six months on. No, the the LTD period does not start until it says in the policy until that qualifying period is over. Gotcha. If you have STD and you're denied STD, you can generally expect it's going to be the same thing from LTD, although it's not technically the same policy and the same test. And so there should be a separate adjudication of it. Uh, but if you're denied STD, it's a separate thing. Okay, thank you so much. No, no worries. And so, Jim, the only talk, I mean, I agree completely with James, is that you do want to inform yourself of, look, these are the benefits that are available. These are the applications that I'm supposed to make and how to navigate all of that. But in terms of this idea of putting your employer on notice of a potential procedure that may or may not happen in the next six to 12 months, I mean, look, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense in my mind. Either way, though, it's your relationship to manage with your employer. From a legal perspective, though, your employer 
employer doesn't necessarily is not necessarily entitled to know all of your medical history and all of your medical information what they need to know is are you going to be working or are you not going to be working so that contact in the context of what james described of getting that information with from hr putting in that application for short-term disability will provide your employer some insight on what's happening from a health perspective but an employer is really only entitled to know your prognosis when you're going to be off when is it reasonably expected so that you're back at work and not necessarily all nitty-gritty around what your all your medical information is which is why by the way most employers have a third-party company an organization or an insurer who administers and sometimes even pays short-term and long-term disability benefits so if you advise your employer that you've got a health issue or you're going to be absent from work for a period of time due to some major surgery and they take the step of actually terminating your employment that's a problem for your employer and so i would want to know that obviously i hope you would reach out to us if that were actually to happen uh, but at the end of the day you want to use some sense of reasonableness be fair to your employer in terms of some insight around when you think you might be off but in terms of putting on them on notice months and months in advance i don't see a lot of point in doing that just yet but you know it's interesting because jim's situation raises the uh the critical reason why when you're in that type of situation where you have issues that are centered on not just you know the potential disability plan but also your relationship with your employer it's absolutely critical that you hire someone who has the ability to advise you in terms of both ends of the spectrum absolutely. not just what to do with your disability but what to do with your employer and you know that's why a firm like ours is really so important because we have such a large group with vast expertise in employment and in disability. And so for the people that are in that situation, and there is a lot of people in that situation, um, it's really an ideal merger of the two different fields. Hope that helped, Jim. Firm that I contact for sure, because I listen to you guys a lot and I love your advice. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate that. I'm going to give you a number as we as we let you go to reach out to uh, James and Tamar. Further, uh, any conversation one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred, and you can email help at disabilityrights.ca. Just uh, you know, a few minutes to go, Tamar, before we get back into a uh, into a break. But we left off with Paige's email, fifty one year old female, and uh, talking about at what point the uh, the treatment could become more stressful, causing anxiety, depression, and fear of being cut off if she doesn't comply, so on and so forth. What uh, what was your opinion on that? Absolutely. So, you know, I think it's a really tough situation to be in when the actions of the employer, or rather the uh, insurer, I'm still thinking about Jim's situation, when mm-hmm. the actions of the uh, of the insurer or the adjuster or even their rehab facility is impacting an individual's well-being. She, she, what Paige is describing is that the treatment itself is actually causing symptoms that are exacerbating, making worse the conditions she already has, her mental health conditions that she already has and and i worry about situations like that for individuals when as james said you really do want to have the people in your corner your own doctor your own treatment provider really stepping up giving some insight to the insurance company that this is what's happening you want that to be documented because here's the key if this is heading in the direction that most of these disability claims are 
And it could be that they prematurely cut off Paige's claim after she goes through this rehab process and they say, look, we think you're good to go. But in fact, her own doctors are suggesting that she remain off work. That's the basis of a challenge to the disability insurer. And if the actions of the disability insurer have impacted and made worse your health conditions, particularly mental health ones, the courts have said, look, there's an extra element of damages over and above the benefits that you're already owed from the insurance company, that the insurance company also has to compensate someone like Paige. And that threshold is not very high, by the way. Mental distress damages, yes, it's not a, a, a large amount, typically around $10,000, maybe a little more, but it's an important element of a claim against an insurance company to say, hang on, not only did you cut off my disability benefits, but the manner in which you put me through the things that you did, the rehab, for example, impacted made worse my overall health conditions and the courts have recognized that that really is an opportunity to sort of say to insurance companies hang on the way you treat a claimant during the claim is also just as important as having an appropriate basis to continue paying benefits and abiding by the policy what do you think about that james that mental distress damages component of, of page's situation well, I, I mean, I certainly agree with what you're saying. I, I I like to look at it, though, more prophylactically. I like to think about how can we avoid getting you in that right. situation to begin with. And the advice I always give is, you know, go to your doctors. If you're getting treatment from the insurance doctors or people recommended by the insurer, as I said before, then switch. Switch to someone that you trust that is recommended by your own physician. But go to whoever it is that is treating you and make sure that your concerns are being heard and that you get support in writing that you can provide to the insurer that shows that the, the treatment that they are requiring you to undergo is not only uh, not improving your situation, but may in fact be pushing you further away from being able to recover and return to work. And that should be enough for the insurer. They want you back at work. And if the, the treatment is harmful, then they ought to have an incentive to get you away from that treatment, get you into something that will actually help. Guys, with that short break, and then right back into it, give you some time. If you're listening to call in like Jim did, you can uh, you can do so, 416-872-1010 or text 71010 as well. I want to send along an email. That's uh, for any time, help at disabilityrights.ca. We will continue the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network, and you're listening to The Disability Law Show. That is correct. It is 149. Some minutes to go here. You want to uh, reach out 416 872 1010. Text is 71010. Beyond that, Tamar and James readily available at 1 855 821 5900. There you go. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Before we get back into our emails and questions, guys, got a, a text in here. It says uh, Recently, I was approved for CPP disability. My two year mark is coming up. Can my insurance company cut my LTD benefits if they think? I could work on different jobs than the one I used when I applied for LTD. I uh, used to do, rather. My LTD is tax-free because I pay for it. Now I will be receiving CPP disability, which is taxable. My insurance company wants me to refund them the money CPP paid me. Do I deduct the taxes? I will have to pay on it. Okay. A lot of things happening here. So let's yeah. talk about CPP disability and just put this into context for our listeners. So 
if you are not um, at the point in your disability claim where your insurer has told you or asked you to apply for CPP disability benefits, you should be aware that that's likely going to happen. So CPP disability is a federally run program. It's connected to the C- the Canada Pension Plan. And so if you've been paying into CPP, if you've been getting those deductions from your paychecks, then if you become disabled, you're entitled to apply for CPP disability benefits, which you are entitled to receive if you can show that you have uh, a severe and, uh, sorry, what's the language, Tamar? It's just escaping. Severe and prolonged. I was about to say permanent. I knew it was wrong. Severe and prolonged <laughs> disability, um, which is a more difficult test than the one that you that you, that you have to uh, undergo for long-term disability. And so if you pass that test, you should be entitled to continue receiving your long-term disability benefits as well. If the government is saying you have a severe and prolonged disability, then it follows that you also have a disability which prevents you from doing any occupation, which is the test that this uh, the texter has talked to us about because she's approaching, he or she's approaching the, the two-year mark of their disability benefit. And so can they cut off your benefits? They can. Will they? They're much less likely to because you have CPP disability. It's possible and we certainly see it happen, but when it does happen, we bring a legal claim and they are running to the table because they know they are in a very, the insurer knows they're in a very bad position. If they've said that you're not entitled to disability benefits under their policy, but the government is saying you have a severe and prolonged disability. That just does not make any sense, and they know it. So can they? Yes. Will they? Probably not. And if they do, there's obviously something you can do about it. Now, let's get to the second part here. And so the texter has said to us that uh, the policy, their long-term disability policy, is a tax-free policy. And just so our listeners understand, some LTD policies are tax-free. If you are paying for the benefit entirely on your own, um, or if it's the, the premiums are being deducted from your paycheck entirely, then it's a tax-free benefit. If your employer is paying for the benefit, or paying for the premiums, I should say, then it's a taxable policy. The benefits are taxed as your income would be taxed. And so in this particular case, the texture has a tax-free policy and now is recognizing the issue is that if they are receiving CPP disability benefits and their insurer is then entitled to offset what you get from CPP disability, as is always going to be the case under the policy, uh, then what's going to happen is you're actually going to come out a little bit short, even though on paper it looks like you're getting the same amount. So let's say, for example, you have a $4,000 tax-free benefit, and then you get approved for CPP disability at $1,000. Well, now you're getting $3,000 from your LTD insurer tax-free because they get to take credit for the $1,000 you're getting from CPP disability. But that CPP disability, that $1,000 is taxable. And so you're not getting that full thousand, you're getting something less. You're, you're gonna have to pay tax on that amount. And so what do you do about that? Well, unfortunately, you can't deduct that from what you, your insurer is, uh, is taking credit for. It is something that we are talking about as a group and whether or not that's something that should be accounted for properly. And we're thinking about ways to address that. On an individual basis, it's very difficult, but it is something that we've talked about, bantied about whether or not that's something that's worthwhile looking at as a class action. I don't know, maybe. 
But there, from a more practical standpoint, on an individual level, there are things that you can do. And the first thing is the disability tax credit. So the disability tax credit is also a federal program. It isn't directly tied to CPP disability, so it's a separate application process, but it does use the same test as CPP disability. That same severe and prolonged disability test is, is, is that applies for CPP disability is much the same test that is, is there for the disability tax credit. And if you are approved for CPP disability and you're approved for the disability tax credit, I believe the credit from the disability tax credit is enough to offset what you're paying in taxes through CPP disability that you come out even. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I'm pretty sure it's real close if it's not there. And so that's really what you do if you're if you're approved for CPP disability and you're taxed on it. It's definitely worthwhile to also apply for the disability tax. With so that, guys, did, oh, yeah, go sorry, ahead, Tamar. Yep. I, well, look, James did a bang-up job, and I, the only thing I wanted to add was that we have a really helpful resource on our website, one of our websites, I think it's ltdfaq.com, eh, John? That's .ca, ltdfaq.ca, And on there, you will find an excellent memo on the way CPP disability works with long-term disability, along with various other memos, by the way, including appropriate treatment and how to deal with doctor's reports and IMEs and a whole host of great resources. Uh, I give James a lot of credit, though he, he hit all the points that I was going to raise about how CPP disability works with LTD. But in case anybody's looking for something uh, in black and white, that's where you can find it. Let me slide in one more email, guys, before for we sure. uh, wrap. And that'll be Lewin. Lewin says, I'm currently on LTD and I need to sell some stocks and it will result in a small profit. Do I need to report it to the insurance company? Oh, such a good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, because my view it is, of it is, of course, absolutely not. Uh, you shouldn't have to account for these kinds of uh, financial sources that you absolutely need when you're getting your long-term disability benefits, which, as we know, are typically at most two-thirds of what you're making beforehand. But let's be more specific. Here's why there could be a concern for Llewellyn, uh, Lewin, rather. And it's because these disability policies do take into account other sources of income. It says, look, you know, we will pay this benefit. We will pay the benefit for X dollars. And then we will deduct a whole host of other things if you've got other income sources. The one that we just talked about, the one that we most reference and that insurance companies are always looking for is in fact the CPP disability. And usually that's item A or B in these sort of offset deduction type language uh, in the disability policies. But if you keep reading, sometimes it also includes income, uh, employment income, severance income, other sources of income. And you really do want to get your policy to see exactly what it says about how broadly it's worded. I have not seen investment income as part of the numbers or enumerated, uh, you know, deductions under disability policies, though I certainly don't want to be giving insurance companies any ideas here. Uh, but because it would be passive income in my mind, so you're selling stocks, you're not actually earning dollars by, you know, working, I think it's outside of the purview or the realm of what the disability policy is actually contemplating as a fair deduction against the long-term disability benefit. So the short answer is no, I don't think that there's a positive obligation to report this type of income, but be mindful that the policy usually will have 
other sources contemplated, and you do have a positive obligation to report these other sources to your insurer, most commonly CPP disability, or perhaps some severance or termination dollars that you might get from your employer. Any last second comments, uh, James, or are you, uh, are you good, yeah. pal? Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is you know, you got to be careful if, um, even as a passive source of income, whether it's from investor, investment income or rental income, if that is a primary source of income, in other words, you know, if you're, for example, a day trader hmm. and you're, 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 you're earning money by selling stock in that way, uh, your insurer is probably going to have a different view of it. Um, but if it's something where you just have these long-term investments as being managed by someone else and you sell them off, they shouldn't have any entitlement to that. There shouldn't be anything under the policy that allows them to take any credit for that. Great show again today, guys. Thanks again for you uh, tuning in, emailing, calling, texting, whatever you manage to do. No problem. James and Tamar, always ready on the other side to talk to you and have a conversation and carry on. 1-855-821-5900. And uh, you want to go to help at disabilityrights.ca through email and the website anytime to ask questions and reach out further. Always lots to be learned. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network.